So let's put an update up on the screen so that we may be reminded where we stand in our uh, series. There you see second to the last, the word West. We are in the last of four installments looking at Christian church history. And you may remember that we have chosen to tackle this project not chronologically, but rather reflecting on different parts of the globe geographically. And so uh, on this next slide you see that we have taken uh, a look at Christianity's movement to the north in Europe, south in Africa, uh, to the east in Asia. And today we turn to the Americas. We turn west. Now, an interesting uh, question. When is it exactly that Christianity sort of took root in different places around the globe? Well, we've learned in the last few weeks that it was the first century that we find Christian community developing in southern Europe and uh, western Asia and in North Africa. But for other parts, quite a bit later, Australia, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of the 17th century, and the Americas, the 16th century, you might say that those of us who live here have come to the party quite late. Now we do see here in the Americas evidence for the arrival of the Christian community. Uh, places like this cathedral in the Dominican Republic or this Baptist meeting house in Rhode Island or this photograph of a mission in Santa Fe, New Mexico or this church in Jamestown, Virginia or this place of worship in Brazil. These places seem quite old, but when we compare them against where Christianity had gone before, let me say it again, we have come to the party quite late. So where in the scriptures might we turn then to find an appropriate passage that would speak, if you will, uniquely to us? I think we find an excellent choice in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, where housed is Jesus praying to his Father in heaven. Picking up in verse number 20, we read, My prayer is not for them alone. And here Jesus is referring to first century believers. My prayer is not for the first century alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, even those from the Americas, even those in the 21st century, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This prayer is uniquely for us. And its focus 
Jesus says to us, may they be one. What does Jesus mean that we ought to be one? I suppose oneness of spirit, oneness in Christ, a oneness of purpose. But could there be something more? I believe so, but it requires that we pay particular attention to the actual prayer of Jesus. Notice these phrases. He says to God, you loved me before the creation of the world. Interesting. Jesus here is referencing deep history, a time even before the creation of the world. Then notice he prays this, to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And commentators observe here that Jesus is referencing the deep future. So in this prayer for us, we have a tremendous historical sweep from the deep past to the deep future. This perspective is reinforced when Jesus prays uh, for us, those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, we do not gain the Christian story through osmosis, but Jesus is predicting that this story, this narrative, will be handed on generation upon generation. We will be connected to something deep in our past. And so when he prays that all of them may be one, I submit to you he is not merely referring to one generation experiencing some sort of social or spiritual oneness, but rather Jesus is indicating that we might be connected to the sweep of history, to the totality of the story. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. And so if we are to live this prayer, if we are to experience this historical oneness, what might this mean for our lives? I think at least it means the acquisition of a couple gifts. The first, perspective. The perspective that comes when we see ourselves connected to something very long, very old. Bruce Shelley, in his book Christian History, makes this observation. Many Christians today suffer from historical amnesia. The time between the apostles and their own day is one giant blank. As a consequence, he writes, of our own ignorance concerning Christian history, we find believers vulnerable to the appeals of cultists. Some distortion of Christianity is often taken for the real thing. At the same time, other Christians reveal a shocking capacity for spiritual pride, hubris. Without an adequate base for comparisons, they spring to the defense of their way as the best way, their party as the superior party. Finally, he observes many Christians engage in some form of ministry without the advantage of a broader context for their labor. When they want to make the best use of their time or their efforts, they have no basis for sound judgment. And then he concludes, Christian history tends to separate 
the transient from the permanent. Fads from basics. Historical perspective. Now let's play with this idea a little bit to um, think more deeply about what this might mean. Let's imagine that uh, the year is 2009, at the end of the year, and someone is urging you to invest in the stock market. And they show you this particular graph of the previous year. And you think, there's no way I'm going to pour my money into this. Look at the graph. It goes down, down, down. Well, imagine today that someone wants to urge you to invest in the stock market, and they show you a, a graph of the last five or six years, and you go, wow, I guess I should give everything because the market is just going up, up, and up again. Well, the problem with both of these is there's not enough historical perspective. Instead, one might consider a much longer run, even a hundred years of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And you begin to see sometimes it goes up and sometimes it goes down. And if you were to look at the last 2,000 years of political and economic history and what happens to money, you would even see a larger span of what might be expected. Historical perspective is needed. Parents, we understand this, don't we? I remember when Nicole and I um, had Audrey... The first couple times she would cry, and we panicked. Did anybody else do this? I mean, we were, why is she crying? But then we started to understand her tears more effectively, with a little more nuance. Years went by, we had a second child. I'm telling you right now, parents, is it true? You can hear a cry on the other side of the house of your child, and you can judge exactly where it should be. On a scale of 0 to 10. Yep, I hear that cry. Run. Or I hear that cry. Eh, they can sort it out. Or I hear that cry. Eh, I'm not going to run, but I probably should finish up what I'm doing and navigate my way to the other side of the house to see what's going on. Now, what has happened to parents? With historical perspective, there comes the ability to sort out the meaning of tears more effectively. Let's look at it another way. Imagine that these two orange circles represent a situation in a church setting, for example. A conflict, a struggle, maybe something theological or social, something that you're facing, and you're trying to determine how ought we to react to this particular problem. Well... Consider history. Put some other circles around it, if you will, and you might be able to discern something a little bit better. And perhaps you've seen this exercise before. If you look at this slide long enough, you will begin to question whether those two orange circles are actually the same size. Why? Well, in one instance, you have surrounded it with much larger circles. This is what happens when we consider a particular problem we're facing, and we look at what's happened in history, and we think, the color of the paint in the church is really not that big of a deal compared to, like, the martyrs, okay? This isn't really a big issue. 
Or it could be, on the other hand, that you start to compare what you're facing against other things in history and you say, you know what, this really is a pretty big deal. Whether or not we actually care for the poor, it seems like historically this is a significant issue. And so when you make that historical comparison, when you pay attention to what's come before, then you can begin to frame the argument. Maybe this next illustration would help. Take a look at these two lines. Let's say this is the challenge that you face at work or at home or in the church or whatever it might be. And you take a look at history and you gain some perspective and then you frame the argument. And of course, you see here that one set of uh, brackets indicates that the issue may not be quite that big and the other seems to elongate the issue into something much more significant. Now, everything we've been doing over these last couple moments is, I believe, greatly lacking in our day and age. In fact, we live in an era where everything is urgent. Musicians, there's no longer any dynamics. Everything is loud. Take a look at uh, one news organization that, because everything has to be breaking news now, CNN, um, <clears throat> um, is announcing something that happened 102 years ago as breaking news. Uh, this is quite urgent. They become in, in such the habit that everything is such a, an alarming thing. And of course, uh, all the news organizations are doing this. Panic alert. This is a historic presidential election. This day is so, that interview, everything is so loud. Where has the historical perspective gone? Is everything level 10? Is everything off the charts? I'm fascinated by the way Jesus used historical perspective to make judgments in his own day. You may remember that his disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath. And the religious establishment said, this is a very big deal. And they began to really let the disciples have it. What does Jesus do? He goes to history. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Jesus draws this big, huge historical circle next to what his disciples are doing and says, I don't really think plucking grain is that big of a deal. Jesus also does the opposite when he doesn't think that the religious establishment is taking him seriously enough. Matthew 17 referring to John the Baptist, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, beheading him, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Jesus uses the historical language of Elijah, but in this case says, a bigger deal than Elijah has come. This is significant. And perhaps the most famous moment where Jesus is wrestling with religious leaders who have lost all perspective. Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you've lost all perspective. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Historical perspective. And I wonder if we use Jesus' little formula in our homes, our places of work, our community, even our church. I wonder if we kept something around like this, uh, just a sheet of paper with a camel and a gnat at the top. And when issues come up in your staff meeting, in your family council, here at the church, in our denomination, is this gnat or is this camel? And where ought it rank on the list? Jesus prays for us, oh, that they would be one. At least, I believe, Jesus means that we would have a sense of oneness, of this great movement that has existed before time began, that it's going to extend deep into the future, because that sense of oneness gives us wise perspective about the day that we're living in. The second gift, I think, is that of joy. Joy. The absolute wonder of realizing that you, that I, that we are a part of something truly extraordinary that extends beyond ourselves. I think we find a hint of this in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number five, uh, Yahweh says, Honor your father and your mother. Pay attention to the past. Care about history. Honor the past. And then there's a promise that your days may be long in the land God has given you. Now, I don't suspect that here God means that actually you will live more years. I don't even think that this means mind your mommy and daddy so you can go to heaven. I think there's something much richer afoot. I think God is saying, honor the past, pay attention to the great story, and you will experience life that will be longer and deeper and richer in ways that you cannot imagine. Last week, I uh, missed an event that I don't like to miss. I was traveling, and so didn't have a choice, but I thought of it even on the evening that took place. It's the retirement celebration that happens here at Walla Walla University for those staff and faculty members who are deciding that it is time for transition in their lives. I love that experience. We did some sleuthing for some photographs of some of those retirees who are members of this congregation. I hope you'll enjoy them as I have. This picture of Professor Beverly Beam. What a great picture. I love the go forth and conquer. Do you see that? Fantastic. Or this one of Carolyn Yonke. Or this photograph of Joe Galusha. Why are you laughing? He does look a little bit like a British spy, doesn't he? I like... The birds are a front, but there's something behind it that's going on. I mean, it does look that way, doesn't it? Or this photograph of Linda Emerson. Look at that computer over there. 
or Tom Emerson engaging in his craft, or this photograph of Val Wren. I don't know how you feel, but here's my testimony. I pinch myself that I get to work here, that I get to be a part of a rich Walla Walla College tradition that has an amazing mission of serious academic work training young people for real mission, a place that is both serious and faithful, I got to tell you, I love being a part of this one. You see it? Do you see it? There's something about saying that you want to be a part of something that's much longer and greater than you are, that gives you great purpose in life. And so because I can, and I was in the mood, and I asked Terry Amott's permission to use some photographs in her definitive history, Bold Venture, here's the 1892 program, the inauguration of this great institution. Or this photograph, a snowscape from uh, the winter season, 1905-1906. Or this picture of a penmanship class in 1903. This next photograph, F.S. Bunch, the first dean of the School of Theology, teaching right about the close of World War I. Think of it. Um, I'm teaching this quarter in the Canada Technology Center, and so I thought a picture of Louis Canada. He taught from 53 to 79. I was nine years old when he, when he retired. Or these photographs that we've looked at here before, the construction of this church facility in 1962. Here the steeple going on top. I just love this photograph here of Professor Cross, also retired in 1979. And then one more photograph, just because Terry included it in the book. I just think this explains a lot, actually, um, about spring quarter around here in, per in particular. I, like, why, what happens in spring? Oh, it's historical. This has been going on a long time, apparently, around here. <laughs> I want to read to you the words of David Brooks in his recent book, The Road to Character. Uh, this first part, a critique of our generation. He says, nobody wants to be an organizational man. We like startups, disruptors, and rebels. There's less prestige accorded with those who tend to the perpetual reform and repair of institutions. Then he says, people who possess the, what he calls the institutional mindset, they have a very different mentality, which begins with a different historical consciousness. In this mindset, the primary reality is society which is a collection of institutions that have existed over time and transcend generations. A person is not born into an open field, he says, and a blank social slate. A person is born into a collection of permanent institutions, including the army, the priesthood, the fields of science, or any of the professions, like being a farmer, a builder, a cop, or a professor. Life, again, he says, is not like navigating this open field. It is committing oneself to a few of the institutions that were embedded on the ground before you were born 
and will be here after you die. It is accepting the gifts of the dead, taking on the responsibility of preserving and improving an institution, and then transmitting that institution better on to the next generation. With this sense of scope, the institutionalist has deep reverence for those who came before. In John 17, Jesus gives us this choice. We can be all about number one, or we can be a part of one. We can be all about big number one, building our resume, our CV, our career, everything we're going to do, whatever pleases us. The world did not begin until I was born. It's all about me. Or, Jesus says, you can be a part of one. A historical one that goes way back. You can be a part of something big. This gives you perspective, but this gives you deep meaning. To the many of you in this congregation who've invested years to the tradition of Walla Walla College. Oh, may we do you proud. May we continue the beauty of this place. Oh, and to all of us, we are a part of a great Advent tradition that goes back nearly 200 years. Christians, we are a part of a great tradition that goes back hundreds of years to the Reformers, hundreds of years before that to a time in Christianity was first flourishing in Asia and Africa and Europe. We go back to Peter and Paul and James and to those women who gave rich testimony. He is risen at the tomb. We go back to Jesus Christ himself. What an opportunity to be a part of one. Sullivan Ballou, a soldier the Civil War on the side of the Union. 33 years of age, the first battle, Bull Run. He has a choice to make. He is torn between family, his wife Sarah and young children, and the possibility, even the probability, of losing his life to give forth his country. In a now famous letter that we have written to his wife, he says, If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for my country, I am ready. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government, to help pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet, and yet, my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. I know, 
I have, I know, but few and small claims upon divine providence. But something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. And one week later, in July of 1861, he will lose his life, wounds suffered in this battle. But he dies a man who is committed to something larger than himself. To generations that have come before. To generations that will come thereafter. Jesus prays to us. Jesus prays for us. May you be one. May you experience historical perspective. May you gain the joys of being a part of something that God has been up to since forever. Jesus says, this is my prayer for you.